All right, you ready? Normally in uh, preaching classes, they tell you to start out with like a good story or some fun anecdote, something like that to, to hook people. And normally I, I try and do that, but here's my intro this morning. You ready for it? Sex, all right? <laughs> I don't need an intro for that. Everybody sits up a little straighter. Like you're all intrigued, right? It's because we have an issue with sex in our culture. We worship it. It is everywhere. It's a good thing. It is, it is a good thing. It's a good gift from the Lord, from God. He created it, but we've turned it into an ultimate thing, into a God thing, and we misuse it. And so we're going to talk about the seventh commandment this morning. The seventh commandment is about sex. It is in Exodus 20, verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, most people are familiar with this commandment, and most people assume that God in the Bible is anti-sex, right? Christians, you're a bunch of prudes. You're just trying to restrict, the, restrict our fun and our freedom. That assumption is wrong. It's wrong. In fact, I'm not overstating this. If you were to restate the seventh commandment positively, it would read like this. You shall have great sex. You shall have great sex. Now, some of you are like, what? That can't be in the Bible. No way, right? The Bible hates sex. The Bible's anti-sex. If you think that, respectfully, you either haven't read the Bible, or when you read it, you misunderstand what it says. And I want to say, that's okay. The Bible is kind of hard to understand sometimes. And I know not everybody has it memorized. We all don't read it probably as much as we want to or should. That's okay. That's why we gather together on a weekly basis to be reminded of what the Bible says. We can never dive too deep into what God's word has to say for us. We can never study it too much. That's why we gather. And so you might hear culture, or you yourself might think, God hates sex, the Bible hates sex, right? But contrary to what you've heard or what you might assume, the Bible is a pro-sex document. It's a pro-sex document. Go read the Song of Songs later, right? Maybe if you're like, if you're 15, 16 or older, you can go read it. If you're not, maybe, maybe don't read it. You say, why? Because as you read the Song of Songs, if you go study it, there are poems in there that will make your grandma blush. I'm for real. It's like, it's a, it's a racy book. It's a racy book. It's all about, it's an entire book of the Bible that is devoted to the goodness of sex between a married couple. It's all about the joys and the delights. There's some explanations in there that are like, can you say that? God says it, so yeah, you, you can, right? The Bible's a pro-sex document. If you don't believe me, go read Song of Songs. If you don't believe me, go read Proverbs 5 through 7. Proverbs 5 through 7 is all about sex, and it's about adultery, too, about how to avoid the temptress or the seductive woman or, or man. Here's, here's a, a couple verses from, from uh, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. It says this. I'm quoting directly, so don't be mad at me, okay? What's he going to say? Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be intoxicated or drunk by her love. Some of you are like, can you say that in church? Listen, those aren't my words. God said that. God said that, right? (laughs) Some of the guys are like, I just found a new life verse, right? What was that reference again? What was that, right? It's true. The Bible is a pro-sex document. It's a pro-sex document. The seventh commandment is a commandment that's meant to protect sex, to elevate it. 
You shall not commit adultery is a command about keeping your promise in mind and body through sexual purity. And if you follow the seventh commandment, you will be in a position to experience the greatest sex that the world has to offer. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to kind of define or or explain what sex is. And then I want to to say what is required for, for married couples to have great sex. So firstly, what is sex? What is it? And not, not the physicalities, not the birds and bees. You, you get all that. But what is it meant to be? Well, first and foremost, sex is meant to be a picture of the gospel. If you go to Ephesians 5, you can read that. That's all about marriage, about men and women and how they mutually submit to one another and love and respect one another. And in Ephesians 5, it also says this in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. In verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. So what, what does this mean? Well, it means that marriage and the pleasures of sex within marriage are meant to be a picture, a foretaste of the pleasures that we will more fully experience in our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the lifelong, enduring commitment that marriage is supposed to be, not that it is in our culture, but the lifelong enduring commitment that it's supposed to be, the mutual submission, the self-sacrificing love that is supposed to be displayed between spouses, the joys and depths and complexities of marital intimacy, all of that is meant to be a picture, a symbol, a foretaste, a living metaphor of what Christ wants us to be able to experience in life with him. Now, some of you guys, and I'm in, I'm in this camp, you might be thinking, that's super weird, dude. Like, Jesus, I'm a guy, and sex is a picture. Like, that's weird. And I get that, and it is kind of weird, but it shouldn't be. Because what the Bible isn't saying, what Ephesians 5 isn't saying, it's not saying that when we get to heaven, we're going to be having sex with Jesus. I'm not trying to be uncouth here, but that's where some people go. That's not at all what this is saying. That's not going to happen. That's irreverent. That's, that's not good. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying, what this means is that the mysterious union that takes place when a, when a husband and a wife come together in the marital bed, and it is mysterious, something weird happens there that's more than physical. When that happens, the joys and delights and ecstasy that are experienced within the marriage bed are but a small foretaste of the goodness, the unity that we can experience with Christ today and more fully one day when we go to be with him in heaven, right? The self-giving that happens in sex, the delight, the naked and unashamed nature of the sexual union, all of that is meant to be a foretaste of the pleasures and delights that await us in Christ. This is why Jesus says in Luke 20, 35, and some of you may have read this and you might be kind of disappointed. He says, in that age, meaning the age when he comes back, when everybody's judged and then there's heaven and there's hell, in that age, he says, there will be no marriage and there will be no giving in marriage. Now, to some of you, that might sound like a huge disappointment. As you long for marriage, maybe you're single, you're looking forward to marriage, looking forward to sex, maybe you're already enjoying the marriage commitment, you're enjoying sexual relationship with your wife or or husband, right? And you're disappointed. You think, how could that be? This is one of the best gifts God has given us. And and Jesus is saying, it's not going to be here anymore? Well, that's because we understand what marriage and sex is supposed to be. Sex is kind of like a wedding ring. It's like a wedding ring. A wedding ring is precious, right? We wear it all the time. If we lose it, we freak out. 
But a wedding ring is not as precious as the marriage and the pleasures of the marriage bed that it signifies. It points to something beyond itself. And so John Piper says it like this. He says, sexual pleasure in marriage, in marriage is precious, but not as precious at what it signifies in relation to Jesus. If someone said, in the future, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your wedding ring. I'm going to take it away. And all you're going to have left are the heightened ecstasies that it stood for. Would you be disappointed? Probably not. And even if you were, not for very long, right? That's what sex is like. It's like the wedding ring that's pointing forward to the future relationship that we will one, more, one day more fully experience in our union with Christ. Marriage and sex within marriage are meant to be living metaphors for the joys and union that exist between Christ and his church. Well, if that doesn't get you excited, it should. This is the kind of depth and intimacy your God, your creator, wants to have with you. Sex is meant to be a picture, a symbol of the gospel. Sex is also meant to be a really good gift. A really good gift. Think about this. God could have made procreation happen any number of ways. There are all kinds of animals out there that are asexual, right? They just like divide in half and bam, you got a new being, right? God could have made it like that. He could have said, all right, once you get married, you got 10 toes, I'm going to make them fall off. 10 kids, right? Thank God he doesn't do that. Praise Jesus, nobody has, we don't all get 10 kids when we get married. He didn't make it like that. Procreation happens the way it happens. And not only that, it's pleasurable. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to make people blush, but there are parts of the anatomy on men and women that their sole purpose is for you to be able to experience pleasure during sexual relations. That's the only purpose. You say, Pastor, you're getting kind of out there. I didn't invent this. This was God's idea. It's a good gift that he says, between husband and wife, enjoy it. It's good. I gave it to you. I dreamt it all up. I dreamed up how it all works. It was God's idea. And he's meant to, meant to be received as a good gift. As a good gift. And much like a gift, if we unwrap it before Christmas morning or before our birthday, it kind of destroys the gift, right? For sex to be great and for sex to be great and received as a gift, it needs to be left unopened until its proper time and proper place. So sex is a symbol, sex is a gift, and lastly, sex is glue. Now I'm going to get to that in a little bit. We'll unpack that in a second. So that's what sex is. We said earlier, the seventh commandment is about protecting sex, about enabling us to experience great sex. So what's required for you and I to experience great sex? Well, it requires four things. For sex to be great, firstly, it needs to be received as a gift. Sex is a precious gift. It's to be treasured and used within God's created confines of marriage. That means it's not God, and it's also not casual. It's a gift. We receive it as a gift for singles. When we, when we receive it as a gift for single people, it means that it won't be this all-consuming thing that you feel like you have to chase after or worship. And for married couples, if we receive it as a gift, it will be enjoyable, life-giving, and it will strengthen your marriage. But if you treat it as a God and look to sex to fulfill you and satisfy you, satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, if you use it outside of God's good design, it will destroy you. That's Victoria's secret. 
You ever walk by the store and you think, what's her secret? She's not very good at keeping it, right? <laughs> She's not. Like, what, what is it? Oh, it? Seems like there is no secret. Proverbs 5, 3 and 6 tells us, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps lead straight to the grave. That's the secret. If you allow sex to seduce you into serving it as your sole source of life's meaning and fulfillment, Victoria, that's sex, will kill you. Spiritually first, and then physically. That's the secret. The seductress, whether that's a man or a woman, their path leads to death and destruction. So if you want to have great sex, you need to receive it as a gift from God and make sure that you treat it as a good thing, not a God thing. That means you'll wait for the right time and the right place to open the gift. Song of Songs, I mentioned that earlier. It's kind of a racy book, right? It says this, Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So we're going to trans- translate that into plain Jane English. Before you're married, don't do anything that would cause you to be aroused. Say, how far is too far in your dating relationship? How far, how far can I go? That's it. So the Bible says, anything that causes arousal is too far. It's too far. You're unwrapping the gift. It's not the time or the place. To have great sex, treasure it as a gift by waiting to open it until the proper time and place. And beyond that, great sex requires three more things. The first one is fidelity. Fidelity. Now, it's a big fancy word. It simply means loyalty. Loyalty. Great sex requires faithfulness and lasting loyalty. Let me tell you a story that kind of illustrates this a little bit. There's a little boy named Sam. Sam's birthday was coming up. His mom asked him, what do you want to do for your party? Sam said, I I want my best friend Johnny to be there. I want to have him over for a sleepover in the morning. I want to go fishing with dad. That's all I want. I I only want Johnny to come. So Sam Sam called Johnny and he invited him. He said, it's my birthday. This Friday, it's my birthday. I want you to come over. I'm not inviting anybody else. Just you. You're my best friend. We've known each other for years. I just want you there. We'll, we'll, We'll party. We'll play video games. In the morning, we're going fishing with my dad. Will you come? Johnny says, of course I come. I wouldn't miss it. I'll be there. The next day, he goes to school. He meets Luke out on the playground. Luke says, Johnny, I'm having a party, right? We're all going to Sky Zone, the trampoline park, right? Super fun. Everybody's going to be there. And then afterwards, we're going camping. Johnny's like, man, that sounds awesome. When is it? When? It's Friday. Johnny's like, man, okay. So he goes over and he finds Sam in the playground. He says, listen, I really want to come to your party, but, John, but uh, Luke's having this other party. This is the sky zone, the trampolines. Everybody's, we're going camping. Everybody's going to be there. Like, I, I'm going to have to cancel. Well, Sam didn't say anything. He just went home, and later that night, his mom found him in his room weeping. She said, what's wrong? So Sam told her, Johnny canceled on me. He screamed, I don't even care anymore. I hate him. I hate Johnny. I don't want him at my party. I don't ever want to see him again. Sam's devastated. And actually, Johnny doesn't really feel that great either. He feels torn, kind of terrible. So Johnny's dad's putting him to bed, and he notices something's wrong with his son. He says, Johnny, what's up? So Johnny explains the situation. 
His dad kind of summarizes it. He says, okay, so Sam invited you to a birthday party. You promised to go. He's your best friend. And then you got what seemed like a better offer. Yeah, that's, that's about right. What should I do, Dad? Well, son, what if I got a better offer for a wife? A lot of really attractive, smart women at my office. What if I just decided I want to trade your mom in for, for a new lady, for, for a new wife? And Johnny said, Dad, you can't do that. You made a promise. Church, friendship only works if we keep our promises. Marriage is only as good as our ability to keep our promises. Sex is only great. It only works as glue as long as you stay faithful. Requires fidelity. Requires you to be faithful, continuously loyal to your spouse. Not only that, great sex requires exclusivity. Sex is meant to be the glue within marriage. We talked about this a little earlier. I said I unpack it. This is where we're unpacking it. It's meant to stick us to our spouse, to deepen and strengthen the love and marriage relationship that already exists. One guy I read put it this way. I love it. He said it's meant to be the covenant renewal ceremony that reminds us of the vows and promises we made to one another. You say, what were those? You remember? To be with and for one another. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Till what? Till divorce do we part. No, till death do we part. Sex is meant to be the means by which we say to one another, I'm one with you. Socially, we have the same friends. Economically, we share our resources. We have the same checking accounts. We don't hide money from one another. Spiritually, we worship together. We're in small groups together. And physically, we come together frequently. And that's what the Bible commands. Commands married couples. Did you know this? I preached on it a couple weeks back. The Bible commands married couples to have sex frequently. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Do not deprive one another, but only for a time. As you both agree, for why? To pray and fast, and then come back together so that you won't fall into temptation or sin. That means if you're married, married people, if you're not coming together frequently enough to notice taking a break, you're not coming together frequently enough. You're actually, Bible, actually, you're in sin. You're disobeying a command from God. You say, why? Why does God care about sex within a marriage because it's powerful this is crazy think about this for a second when the bible talks about you christian fighting against satan what does it say when you come up against satan what does it say it says resist him stand firm fight when the bible says when the bible talks about sexual sin seduction sexual temptation lingering on that image thinking about clicking on it seeing the pretty jogger the studly guy lingering when the bible talks about sexual temptation what does it say run run away so we got like a really powerful cosmic being the devil the bible says stand stand firm fight but when you come up against sexual sin the bible says god says run Run away because sex is powerful. It is so powerful. That's why it's such a train wreck in our culture because the devil uses sex to warp us, to, to lead us down that path away from God, away from him. 
Sex is powerful. Within marriage, it's meant to be glue. And much like glue, it's meant to bind two things together. You see, when glue is used for that purpose, it's a really marvelous thing. It's productive. It's powerful. But if a person goes off on his own and starts to sniff glue to get high, he's perverting its purpose. I just thought it was the dumbest thing, right? You can't buy whipped cream or glue in stores because you've got to be 18 and get carded because some dummies out there are like sniffing the stuff. Like, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's not what it was made for. If you use it like that, you will damage yourself. This is true of sex. See, something scientific happens when we have sex. There are hormones that are released. Dopamine, oxytocin. They literally bond you physically to another person. The bond's not just scientific. It's spiritual too. And for sex to work as glue, it requires a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And when kept within these confines, sex has a sticky quality like tape. It's like tape. Sticks you. Cements you to your spouse. But just like tape, if you keep sticking it to everything that's around, it will lose its stickiness. It loses its stickiness. Not only is the bonding power of sex lessened or stripped away altogether for those who take sex outside of marriage, but they've done studies and actually you're not able to bond as as you're supposed to, but your overall happiness with life goes down. You can Google this. Google it. Do it. And be careful. Make sure your safe search is on and on. But Google, Google it. Studies about sexual happiness, sexual fulfillment in single people versus married people. Study after study after study has concluded that married sex is not only the best sex, it also produces the happiest people. It's true. Great sex requires fidelity and exclusivity. That's what the seventh commandment is all about. If you want to have great sex, don't commit adultery. Practice keeping your promises to your friends in thought and deed so you'll keep your promise to your spouse and stay exclusive to them alone. And lastly, great sex requires intentionality. For married couples and for singles as well, we need to be intentional to remember that sex is not God. It's a gift that points to something beyond itself. All the delights and joys, complexities of sex within marriage is but a picture of our union with Christ, what he is offering us. This means that to keep a proper perspective on sex, we need to take great intentionality to pursue Jesus. See, sex is not the end goal. That's what culture says. Sex, end goal. That's what everybody's working for. That's not true. See, what is the end goal? Life with Jesus. Married or unmarried, life with Jesus is the end goal. So intentionally focus on Christ. In the Christian life, you're to be like a running back in football right? Focus on the end zone. This is where so many people get tripped up. They hear a sermon about sex, and they're like, okay, I won't think about sex. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to, I'm not, and they focus on the thing they're not trying to focus on. That's not how we win this. That's not how we overcome this battle. You're like a running back. All good running backs, the good ones. What do they do? They bust out of that hole. Their eyes are looking at the end zone. The end zone is Jesus. Life with Jesus They don't revel in the chase. They're not focusing on tacklers, avoiding tacklers. They're end zone focused. 
Jesus-focused. When the tacklers come, when the sin that so easily entangles come, if your eyes are on Jesus, you have the ability to escape. That's what you're to be like. Intentionally focus on Christ. Run hard after him. And the sin that so easily entangles and tackles you, you will be able to avoid it. And you will be freed up to enjoy the good gifts of God. If we don't pursue Jesus and make him our focus, we're going to fail. We're going to either make sex too big of a thing, or we're going to treat it as too little of a thing. And remember, sex is not a God. It's not something to be worshipped. It's also not casual. It falls somewhere in the middle. If you want to keep sex in its proper place, intentionally pursue a relationship with Jesus. You say, how? What does that look like? Simply, grow, connect, engage. Study your Bible. Talk to Jesus and people who know Jesus. Grow personally. Connect at a local church with fellow believers who can encourage you, help uplift you, listen to you when you've sinned and failed as you confess so that you might receive healing and look for opportunities to share what Christ is teaching you. Engage in the mission. That's what it looks like. Intentionally focus on Christ to overcome sexual sin, to have great sex. Secondly, how else do we need to be intentional? Feed and weed your lawn, right? A healthy lawn needs fertilizer and weeding. The same is true for your sexuality. For married couples, fertilizing your sex life, sex life means freedom and frequency, quantity and quality. Be intentional to make sex a priority in your relationship so that you're coming together enough to be, for it to be considered frequent. And when you come together, be intentional so it's not always the same. Schedule it if you have to. Put it on your calendar. Seriously. It's that big of a deal. And mix it up. Again, I'm not trying to be uncouth, but you're free in Jesus. Go ring Saul of Solomon. Everything that they talk about in there is permissible. You're free. Freedom and frequency. It takes intentionality to keep things from getting stale. It takes intentionality to be frequently coming together. Be creative. Have fun. For married couples, weeding your sex life means actively pulling weeds as well as putting down preventative measures. measures. So that's a lot of big words. What, what does that mean practically? Here are a couple of practical things. If you're married, don't have close female friends if you're a male, and don't have close male friends if you're a female. This would include in-laws, co-workers, couple friends. When you send texts, include the spouse. Include your spouse, right? Commit to never be alone with the opposite sex, unless it's your sibling or mom or dad. Confess if you violated your marriage bed. Bring your sin into the light and expose it. Expose it. This can be painful, but as James says, there is freedom and healing to be found in confession. I've counseled multiple couples who've had infidelity and porn addictions and bringing sin into the light. It's painful. It's hard. But the ones that are committed to the confession process and trust Christ through it, their marriages are better for it. They're better for it. Healing comes. Trust can be rebuilt. Now, if you're one of those people, it's a good idea to talk to Wes or myself or one of our elders or a godly person you know and kind of get some wisdom, what it looks like to go through that confession process. But start praying today. God, I want to be free. To be free means bringing our sin into the light. Not so we can be condemned, so we can expose it. It'll lose its power over us. We can walk in the freedom that Christ bought, bought for us. Confess. 
take thoughts captive. If you're married or single, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to that temptation. I think it was Luther who said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can prevent it from making a nest there, right? It's not a sin to notice a beautiful woman or a studly man. God wired us this way. It's a sin to undress them with your mind, to go down that fantasy. So when you notice a pretty person, thank God for making something beautiful, and then bounce your eyes away. Divert your thoughts. Cry out to the Holy Spirit for help in this. That's how you weed and feed your lawn if you're married. Now for the single folks. Fertilizing your sexual lawn looks like channeling all of your sexual energy into service for the Lord and for your neighbor. Be intentional to stay active doing productive things. Idle hands are the devil's playground, right? There's so much work to be done in the kingdom, so many activities to be enjoyed. And if you're single, you've got a lot of freedom and time to give yourself to these things. So be intentional to use your time well doing fun and productive things for God and your neighbor. Also, if you're single, fertilize your sexuality by practicing saying no. Say no to a food that you love for a time. Say no to an activity for a time. Learning to say no and controlling your desires and urges with food or entertainment or activities or anything will translate into self-control with your sexual desires. It will help you say no to sex before marriage and then actually that same self-control will be the same thing that enables you to have frequent sex once you're married. Pulling weeds while you're single in your sexuality looks like confessing. Confessing to a trusted group of friends when you fail. Getting rid of the things that trip you up. If your computer is too much of a temptation for you to handle, leave it at work. Delete your internet connection. Pay for a filtering service. Weeding and feeding your sexuality if you're single also looks like establishing appropriate boundaries before you start dating. Say, what are some? Here's some boundaries that I think you should consider if you're single. Commit to not touching the person you're dating for 40 days. Commit to never be alone. If you got to be alone, never be alone with the lights off. If you got to be alone with the lights off, never be alone with the lights off lying down. Commit to appropriate displays of affection. Don't touch what a modest bathing suit covers. Don't commit adultery. Ultimately, the seventh commandment is about freedom. You say, how so? It's a command to not do something. It's restricting our freedom. And that's where the Bible challenges our, de- our idea of freedom. See, a fish that tries to live out of water is not really free. He's free in one sense, but not in another. He's only free when he lives within the restrictions that nature has placed around him. This is true freedom. Learning to live and thrive in the environment that God has designed for us. Sex is only great within the confines of biblical marriage. When we restrict ourselves in the way God restricts us, we aren't less free. We are more free to flourish and thrive. See, church, God wants you to know. He wants you to know him and his love for you that he poured out on Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ. He wants you to have joy and experience abundant life today, which includes how you experience sexuality. For you to have great sex, these are the restrictions that you must place around sex. Now I realize that we all fail to live within these restrictions. We all do. 
We've all failed when it comes to keeping the seventh commandment. You failed, I failed. And even if we keep it physically, every single one of us has committed adultery with our minds. We've made a mess of things sexually. Living out our fantasies in our head, clicking on those websites, going too far with significant others, lingering too long in the embrace with our coworker. We failed. We've all failed. We've been led astray by the seductress down paths of sexual deviance and destruction. And that's why I want to conclude with the last picture of Jesus here. It comes from the Gospel of John, I believe. There's a local man headed home from a hard day of building houses, a carpenter. As he approached his house, he got closer. What he heard crushed his heart, filled him with rage. His wife was in the throes of passion with another man. He burst through the door. The man ran. He thought, I'll find that, that guy later. He grabbed his wife by her hair and he drug her down to the local synagogue. She's wrapped only in a bed sheet. It was a strange sight in the small town. A crowd began to gather as she was walking. He was taking her to the religious leaders. Once he got there, he explained what happened. The penalty for adultery back then, death by stoning. So the crowd started to gather some stones in their hands. They're ready to pummel this woman caught in adultery to death. But then that teacher that everyone had been talking about, he appears in the scene out of the crowd. And he steps in front of that woman. And he kneels down and he starts drawing in the ground. People are anxious to start throwing stones. And then he speaks. He who is without sin casts the first stone. He goes back to drawing in the ground. And one by one, starting with the oldest, the crowd began to disperse. Until the only two people that are left was the only sinless man to ever walk this earth and the woman wrapped in her bedsheet. He looked up at the woman. He said, has no one condemned you? No. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Friend, you've fallen, you've failed sexually, so have I. We all have. Join the club. Hear the words of your Savior. Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, it's a heavy, heavy message. It's with broken hearts that we cry out with you. We have not lived up to the seventh commandment. And we're worse off for it, Lord. We are a slave to sexual sin. We worship it as a God, or we treat it flippantly, like it doesn't matter, like it's just some physical transaction between two people. And it's destroying us, Lord. It's making us crazy. We've lost our minds sexually. We want to repent of that, Father. We want to declare that's not true. That's not who we want to be. We want to be free. We want to experience great sex within the confines that you've set around it. Father, would you help us experience the freedom that you've bought for us in Jesus? Father, for the ones who failed, who failed even yesterday, would you give them a picture of who Christ is? May they hear the words, then neither do I condemn you. May they hear the loving embrace of their father who says, come back, child.
It's okay. I'll clean you up. I'll forgive this. We can work with this. I'll fix it. I'll redeem it. We'll, we'll make it better. That, that relationship's not too far gone. That marriage isn't too far gone. You can overcome this. You're not going to be in this habit forever. We can break this. I can break this. Trust me. May, may, may they hear that, those words. And Father, for, for those of us who are stuck in a habit, may we be encouraged by the command to go and sin no more. And not just encourage, Father, but empower us. Break the chains of bondage that are latched around our necks. I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would break those bondage, that you would break those chains, that you would release people from demonic oppression, Father, in this area, that you would close those doors and drive out the sexual sin from our lives. Forgive us, Lord, and help us live in your freedom. Thank you for paying for all of it through Christ on the cross. We love you, Lord. Help us love you more than sex. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.